0: The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. I don't know what it is, but the, you know, the bite in the, uh, I don't know what it is, but the bite bite in that video just hypes me up every time. Um, I don't know, it's a silly thing to enjoy, but I just, you know, sometimes when you make a video, you know it needs something a little bit extra, and that's where I was at with that video, and then Nathan was like, hey, have them take a bite out of the Bible, and I was like, Brilliance, brilliance. Uh, my name is Evan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, and if you couldn't tell from what I just said, uh, I'm the creative lead here at the Grove Church, so I handle a lot of the media. Um, I'm also a massive nerd. Um, I'm a nerd about some things, which are embarrassing to be nerds about. Um, I'm not personally ashamed, but other people are ashamed for me. Um, but I'm also... I'm also not. I, I'm not ashamed of being a nerd about the Bible. Um, I love learning about the Bible. I love reading it. Um, I love being able to uh, teach about it, and so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to continue our series made to crave, and we're actually going to be talking about all of the epistles, which sounds nuts, and it is, but it's going to be super fun. I'm really excited for this. Um, if you don't know what an epistle is, don't worry. I'm going to explain it here in a second. But first, uh, let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father. I just thank you so much for the incredible gift that it is to be able to gather together and worship you the way that you deserve to be worshiped. I pray that today, um, that as I speak, they would be your words and not mine. I pray that there wouldn't be a hint of pride in my heart, but that you would use me to communicate your gospel and that you would prepare all of our hearts to hear it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so epistle... I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't know why we use this word. Um, it's, it's a fancy word for letters, and that's what these are. These are letters that were written by the apostles uh, to different churches or different people, and we'll talk a little bit more about the history and the different uh, people that they are written to as well, um, but I think it's actually incredible, and I, I say this all the time, but, but one of the mistakes that we make when we read the Bible is we don't pause and think about just how incredible some of the things are. Um, We don't pause and think about how incredible it is that we're holding letters written by people who knew Jesus personally and giving advice to churches and to other people. That's incredible. And, and so obviously we should pay attention to the wisdom that is found within them. So today we're gonna kind of do an overview of a bunch of the different letters. And the hope is that whether you're reading through some of the epistles now or whether you're following the reading plan, it'll be a little bit later in the year, um, that you would be able to you know better understand and, and be able to glean a little bit more out of them. Uh, or if you've never read them, Hopefully this message will kind of inspire you to go and read some of them. Because they're because they're awesome. They're great. Uh, so the first category of the letters, and these start after, so if you read the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans is the first of the epistles, and then it goes all the way through the book of Jude. And then the first group are they're Pauline, is what they're called, or Paul. Uh, they're letters written by Paul to the different churches in that he had ministered to. The first one is to the church in Rome, which is why it's called Romans. The first epistles are really easy because you know exactly who they're written to. Later on, it gets a little bit more complicated, but Romans is a little bit unique because Normally what we see in the letters of the New Testament is that Paul would plant a church, he would leave, and then he would write a letter back to that church. And he was kind of using the best technology of his day, the road system and letter writing, to be able to better communicate with the churches that he had left behind. Romans, or Rome, was actually a church that he didn't plant. He had, he had never been to, but he heard about what God was doing, and he wanted to write a letter to encourage the people. But because of this, what that means is Paul's not writing to refute anything. Because usually what would happen is he would plant a church, People would write to him and say, hey, someone came along and said, this blatant heresy, is that true? And Paul was like, guys, no, like, just listen to what I told you. Um, and so in this one, Paul's actually just lying out fully, here is what we believe as Christians. It's kind of his systematic theology, if you will. It goes point by point. Um, if you grew up in church, or at least the era that I grew up in church, we call it the Roman road. Because everyone loves alliteration. Um, but you know, you would talk about like when you're sharing your faith with people, you can take them on the Roman road and you would go through like Romans chapter three and it talks about how all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Then we get to Romans six where it talks about the wages of sin is death. So in other words, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short and we deserve death and hell because of that sin. But as Romans continues on, what do we learn? We learn that Jesus Christ made a way where we couldn't make a way that he fulfilled the old covenant and he brought in a new covenant. Um, so if I had to sum up the theme of the book of Romans in, in one sentence, it would simply be this: our salvation is through faith in Jesus. The next set of letters, um, they're a little nuts, but I love them. Uh, they're written to the church at Corinth, so these are 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Um, there's things that Paul says here that you would think you would never have to say. Like Paul is like, hey everyone, um, you know, don't date your stepmom that's not cool. Um, and again, you would think you wouldn't have to lay that out. Like, that should just go without saying. Paul had to explicitly say that. Um, he also says, hey, guys, love that you're doing communion. That's rad. Um, maybe don't get smashed on the wine every time that you do it. Maybe, you know, some a little moderation wouldn't hurt anybody. Um, these are the things that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth to correct. Um, and so it's a little bit humorous and sad, I guess, at the same time when you read the letter with, with that context. Um, but also, I love, in particular, there's a section between chapters 12 and 14, where Paul talks about how um, we should earnestly desire to work and move through the gifts of the Spirit. Um, We should desire to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do ministry. And that's not just like pastors, right? That's all of us. We should all desire that thing. Um, But in chapter 13, what does he get at? He gets at the idea that no matter what gifts we work in, no matter how solid our doctrine is, um, no matter how good we are at what we do, if we don't have love, then no one is going to listen to what we're saying, and it doesn't matter. And, and that's where we get 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. It's read at weddings. It's, you know, the love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast, and it keeps going on. Um, and it's appropriate for weddings, right? Like, it's a good thing for me um, when I interact with my wife, who's running camera too, eye contact. Um <laughs> When I interact um, with my wife, it's a good thing for me to think, okay, am I being patient? Am I being kind? Am I showing love? Um, but that's not all that that verse applies to, right? It's not just about romantic love. It's not just about uh, marital love. It's about the love that we show everyone. So when we're interacting with strangers, when we're interacting with um, that family member who comes to the weddings that we don't like hanging out with, when we're interacting with people at the church, even when we're interacting with, like, friends, are we showing love and as Christians, it's a convicting thought to think if, if we're not showing love, then nothing else is going to really get through. If, if I had to sum up uh, the theme of First and Second Corinthians, it would simply be this. We must show Christ's love to others. The next set of books, I'm, I'm going to kind of group together, and I'll tell you why in a second, but they are Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, or letters to the churches in Galatia, which is a region um, in modern-day Turkey. Um, it's called Galatia because the Gauls, who are a Germanic people, migrated to there. I find that fascinating. I don't know if you do, but I was like, whoa. Celts live there. That's cool. Um, but then, you know, the church at Ephesus was also, uh, it, it received a letter. And then the church at Colossae is interesting because, like Romans, it's the other letter that we have written by Paul that was not written to a church that he had been to before. And so what happens is there's a man named Epaphras. Epaphras goes, and he listens under Paul. He's, his life has changed. He's saved. And I love the fact that his instinct is, I need to go back to my hometown, and I need to plant a church. I need to tell everyone I can about Jesus. So good on a Epaphras, that's awesome. And then he writes to Paul talking about some of the problems that he's having. And so Paul writes a letter and sends it back. And so all three of these letters are dealing with a a heresy that is put forward by a group of people called the Judaizers. And and, and what they were is they were Jewish Christians who believed that you had to uh, follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Or in other words, like the, the list of all of the different, I think it's 600-something different commandments that we find in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, that we need to follow all of the dietary restrictions restrictions, and those things in order to be saved. And I think sometimes our instinct is to really look down on the Judaizers. Um, and, and to be clear, what they're saying is wrong. Like, we are not under the Old Covenant. That's not the way this works. Um, but I do think it's important for us to put ourselves into the mindset that they would have been in. Like, like imagine for a moment being a first century Jew, um, you see Jesus, you know, okay, this is the Messiah. I wanna follow what he has to do. But but part of that is that covenant that you've been under, the law that you've been following your whole life and your parents have been following and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents all the way back to Moses, that's done now. That's fulfilled. Like that that would be an incredibly difficult shift to make in our minds. And I think that rather than looking down on them or kind of mocking them for what for what they were thinking there, I think it's important for us to think to ourselves, where am I holding on to things that deep down I kind of know aren't true? But just because, you know, it's what I've always believed or it's what's comfortable, where where am I adding things onto the gospel that weren't there? And I th- I think in, in that sense, a lot of us are making the same mistake. That the Judaizers are making, and it's important to be able to, to reason through that. If, if I had to sum up the, the main point of these books in one sentence, um, I couldn't do it. I did two sentences, so sorry, everybody. I, cheat, I cheated on this one, but it would be simply this sentence. Uh, Christ, who is above all else, fulfilled the law for us, so we must live in unity under him. And so part of that is in the book of Ephesians, after Paul reiterates and he reminds the church, we are saved by faith, we're saved by what Christ has done, not what we have done. He actually talks to them about how important it is to live in unity. Like I love this passage in Ephesians chapter four where Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, that I'm a sinner who is saved by God's grace and I know that you're a sinner who is saved by God's grace, it becomes very difficult to be petty and to kind of rip apart the church or to, or to cause conflict. If, if we all realize that we are works in progress, that none of us are better than the other person, but that we're all saved because of what Christ has done, all of a sudden that's gonna change our perspective of how we treat others. The next book I want to highlight is the book of Philippians, or Paul writes this to the church at Philippi. This letter is a little bit unique because Paul's not really rebuking anything. Uh, What happens here is Paul's in prison, um, and if if you read through Acts, you know that Paul is in prison like half of his life. He spends a lot of his time in prison. The church at Philippi is concerned about this, and so they write Paul a letter, hoping to encourage him, checking on how he is, and then Paul writes back, and his message, I think, is incredible because it's essentially... Hey, don't, don't worry about me. I'm doing great. I'm preaching the gospel to my prison guards and they're doing awesome. I'm still writing letters. Like, like Paul has this incredible attitude about the suffering that he's walking through. And then he utters this phrase, which I think is incredible. or inspiring is probably the better way to put it. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Or, or, or to say it another way, Paul is like, hey, they can't win. Because if... If I stay alive, if they keep me alive, I can keep preaching the gospel. I can keep writing letters. I can keep pushing forward the mission of Christ. And if they kill me, then I go spend eternity with Christ right now. It's a win win for me. And I think what what an incredible perspective for Paul to have in the midst of the incredible suffering that he was walking through. And, and what a perspective for us to try and have as we walk through trials and tribulations, as we walk through really difficult seasons of life to realize that no matter what happens, if we are in Christ, we, we win. If, if, if I had to sum up the main idea of Philippians, it would be simply this. Follow the example of Christ and live with an eternal perspective. Or in other words, don't just live with this life in mind, and this life is important, but also live with the, the life to come in mind as well. The last section in, in this, or the last two books in this section of letters written to churches is First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, these were written to the church at Thessalonica, which is super fun to say. And uh, these are probably... The earliest written documents that we have in the New Testament, they're dated to about 15 to 20 years after uh, Jesus' resurrection, which is incredibly early, so I I love that we have these. The first letter is written as an encouragement to the church to live in light of the fact that Christ could return at any moment. So so as Christians, our great hope, right, is when Jesus comes back, spoilers for the end of the Bible, Jesus comes back, he wins. It's awesome. Uh, so read Revelation. It's a good time. Um, but we're waiting for that moment, right? And we don't know when it's going to be. We're, regardless of what YouTube videos tell you, we don't know when that's going to happen. And we, um, but we are told that it will be like a thief in the night. Or in other words, that it's, it's not gonna, we're not going to know. But because of that, we need to live knowing that it could be at any time. Like, are we putting things off? Are we saying, oh, I'll, I'll get to like what God has called me to do eventually because we don't actually live with that perspective. And so that's what Paul is writing to encourage the church to do. Um, 2 Thessalonians is interesting because it's written a couple of months later, and it's kind of correcting some of the misconceptions that the that the church had about what Paul wrote. But it's also... Addressing, it seems that there's a man who came in after Paul and he wrote a letter forging it, saying that it was from Paul. And he said, Hey, Christ has already returned. You missed it. Bummer. We're in the tribulation now. Here, here it is. Um, and so, and I say that flippantly, but what, what I think is really sad about that is the church of Thessalonica was undergoing such intense persecution, um, that they were like, yeah, that makes sense to us. And I think it's really convicting for us sometimes, like in the modern modern American church, like how often do we think of ourselves like, yeah, like, oh man, we're going through like major persecution right now. And sometimes it's a little bit humbling to compare the really small things that we go through through um, the life-risking dangers that the early church or even other churches in the world right now in different areas have to go through. If I if I had to sum up the uh, the theme of the letters to the Thessalonians it would be Christ could return at any moment and so we must live in light of that. This next section of letters, these are Paul's letters written to people, so not to churches in general. These are written to specific people. Uh, The first ones are three letters written to pastors. There's two written by to Timothy, and then one written to Titus. Um, I find these really interesting because, like, as a young pastor, right, there are letters written by Paul. Two young pastors. So it's very, it's very good in that sense. And he's giving them a ton of practical advice. Like he's saying, Hey, when you're appointing other pastors or where you're appointing deacons, here's what you need to look for. Here's the character list, all those different things. Um, I love that in Titus, like it seems like you, you kind of have to read between the lines, but it seems like Timothy's doing a pretty good job and Titus is kind of messed up a bit. So Paul is kind of like, Hey, man, like, come on, like get, get, get with the program. You make sure you get this together. Um, but what I also love, and I think is just incredibly powerful, is is Second Timothy, because Paul writes this as he is about to be put to death. He clearly knows. When you read the letter, you can see it. He clearly knows that he's going to die soon. Um, he is under the persecution of the emperor Nero, um, inventor of the neck beard, and it's his life is coming to an end. You think I'm you think I'm joking? Look up statues of Nero, and it's disgusting that guy. Anyway, um, but Paul Paul is writing his last words to his spiritual son. And I I, I think it's just fascinating that we get this window into the life of of Paul, right, who is just a titan of the early church. And we get to see what he thinks are the most important things to pass along to one of his closest friends as he gets to the end of his life. And and, and we collectively as a church, we, we get to know what that is. If I had to sum up these three letters, it would be simply this, um, stand firm and love your people well. The next letter is Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, Philemon was not a pastor. He was actually a member of the Church of Colossae, um, a well-respected member. And what happens is is Philemon has a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus escapes and he runs away and he joins Paul at some point and essentially does ministry with Paul. And Paul says that he finds him incredibly helpful, like he's being just a, a massive support to him. But Paul eventually sends Onesimus back to Philemon, with this letter. And Paul asks rather forcefully for Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom so that he can return back to Paul and that they can do ministry together. Um, And I say rather forcefully because I'm paraphrasing here, but Paul is essentially like, hey, Philemon, I'm asking you to do this. I could command you to do this. Let's not forget everything I've done for you. Here's all of that. But I'm gonna ask, I'm not gonna command, here it is. Um, But what what Paul is getting at in this moment, and I think it's such an important thing for us to remember, is that he is asking Philemon to treat Onesimus first and foremost as a brother in Christ and not as a master-slave relationship. And for us, what that says is that regardless of everyone in this room, everyone in the corporate church, regardless of our differences, whether those are social, economic, or racial or cultural or our backgrounds or our political beliefs, like whatever they are, first and foremost, our relationship with each other is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how we treat each other. And all of those other things are secondary. And so if I had to sum up the theme of, Philemon, it would simply be, we are brothers and sisters in Christ above all else. The next letter is Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is a little bit interesting because it's the only book where we have a lot of debate over who wrote it because it's anonymous. Traditionally, it's ascribed to Paul, um, but all of... Paul's letters start off with like, hi, it's me, Paul, whereas Hebrews just kind of jumps right in. So it seems a little bit weird, um, but it does mention Timothy at some point. So we can assume that he is a companion to Paul. It's someone who traveled with Paul, most likely. And it is written to the Hebrews or to the Jews. These are Jewish Christians. Um, it's a little bit of a later letter, and it's an encouragement for them to, again, put away the old covenant and follow the new covenant of Christ. So to to resist the instinct of trying to go back to that which was old and to continue on with what Christ has done. And another incredible theme that I love in it is this idea that Jesus is our high priest, So so under the Old Covenant, you didn't have direct access to God. Um, You would have to go to a priest, specifically on the Day of Atonement, right? The high priest, he would offer sacrifices for the nation. He was kind of standing in between God and man. And so the author of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the high priest. He's the last high priest. He's the only high priest that we need. He's the, the best high priest. And because of that, we have direct access to God. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily think that right because in the back of our minds, like, so we're gonna do um, prayer and worship at the, end of our, at the end of our gathering today. And praying together is, is amazing. I think it's important to do. Um, but what's not happening in that moment, it's not like you don't have access to God, but then the prayer team person does, and then you go up and they, and they connect you with God and that's happening. Like, there's nothing special about the, t- the prayers of a prayer team member. There's nothing special about the prayers of a pastor because if we're saved, We all have access to God. And and again, speaking of things that we know, but we don't really think about, the fact that we can talk to God and he listens. Like that's incredible. Um, And so if I had to sum up Hebrews, it would be Jesus is the better high priest. This next section, these are letters written by Jesus, his brothers, um, which is incredibly faith building to me because I think like, let's say, for instance, I came forward and I was like, Hey guys, I think I'm the son of God. Um, A, don't believe me. Shut that down really fast. But, but B, I think the people you would have the hardest time convincing that was true would be my brother and sister who grew up with me, right? Like, if, if you went and you were like, Hey, I think, I think Evan's perfect and sinless. They'd be like, <laughs> okay, okay. Like, cause they know me, right? They grew up with me. Um, but what, what an incredible testament it is that Jesus's brothers died believing that he was the son of God, that he was the Messiah. And so we see James. James is the eldest of Jesus' brothers. Um, He rises to a level of prominence in the early church. Like we see some councils happening in Acts, and they look to James for wisdom. At some point, he writes this letter, and he describes it as to uh, the dispersion or the diaspora. So these are Jewish believers uh, in Christ who have, because of persecution, they've had to leave. And James is encouraging them to hold fast to the faith, The book of James is oftentimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament because there's sections where it's just nugget of wisdom after nugget of wisdom. And the final theme, and this is how I would sum up his book in one sentence, um, is true faith is accompanied by works. And I think it's an important balance, right? Because we understand we're not saved by what we do. We're saved because of what Christ has done. But at the same time though, if we are saying I've had my life transformed by Jesus Christ and there's no evidence of that anywhere, that's a problem. And that's an indication that what you the first thing probably isn't true if there's nothing about your life that has changed because of it. And so James is, James really gets after that idea. The book of Jude, I did this one a little bit out of order, but this is the other Jesus, the other one of Jesus' brothers who didn't, who wrote a book of the Bible, um, who wrote a letter. What we can guess happened is after James is killed for his faith in Christ, uh, Jude rises to a level of prominence, probably the same sort of position that his brother held. And then Jude is actually one of the latest letters that we have. It was written in the 80s or 90s, um, the first 80s or 90s, like not the ones that we think of, um, but it's very, very, very late. And it's interesting to me because it's one of the shortest books in the New Testament. Like Jude, Philemon, and the second two letters of John are both like, you could read them all in a day, and if you want to feel really accomplished and be like, hey, I read a book of the Bible today, those are the four to really really go for. Obadiah is the Old Testament one, if you're interested in that. Um, But Jude is getting at this idea that as the church we have to stand firm, we have to reject false teaching, and we have to persevere in the midst of persecution. these This is kind of the advice that Jude is giving to the church. And if I had to sum up the book of Jude with one sentence, it would simply be, we must persevere. The next set of letters; these are written by Peter uh, of walking on water and denying Christ fame. Uh, but he was a disciple. He's and I, you know I, I hate to mention the denying Christ thing because he you know he makes up for that. It's a good time. Um, but Peter is planting churches. He's going nuts, um, and he writes these letters. These are both clearly meant to be widely distributed. They're meant to be. They go to a church and then they're supposed to copy it and send them along to other churches. The first letter is really about living holy lives, like how as Christians we are uh, to do this, we're to strive to live holy lives and some practical advice on how to do that. The second letter I think is fascinating because it was written at about the same time as 2 Timothy. Um, Tradition tells us that Peter and Paul actually die at around the same time. They both die in Rome under the persecutions of Nero. And where 2 Timothy is Paul's last words to his spiritual son. Second Peter is Peter's last words to the church as a whole. So again, we get a window into one of the titans of the early faith. What is he thinking about at the end of his life and what are the things that he wants to communicate to the church? Um, If I had to sum up the idea of Peter's letters, it would be live holy lives and grow in holiness. The final section of letters that we're going to be talking about today is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These probably came like together in a packet with the first letter meant to be widely distributed, right? The first church would read it, and then they'd copy it, and then they'd send it to other churches so that they they could be blessed by it. The second letter deals with a lot of the same themes. It's much shorter, and it's clearly written to that church. So it's using names, and it's using locations that that church would be familiar with. The third letter is written to the pastor of that church. He's a man named Gaius. And that letter's really interesting because it's it's literally all about, it's just John saying like, hey, Gaius, love you, hope to see you again. And then it's all about how to deal with this really difficult guy named Diatryphes in the church, um, which I've always thought, that's a bummer of a way to get your name into the Bible. Just like for all of eternity, we now remember that Diatryphes is the guy that gave Gaius a bunch of problems at his church. But you know, that's what, that's what happens when you do that, apparently. But, and you'll notice a theme with many of these letters. Many of these letters are written towards the end of the apostle's life. And with John, I think it's so interesting because this is written decades after Peter and Paul's final letters. John, according to tradition, survived for much longer. And he was probably the last person alive as he wrote these who personally knew Jesus. And he was almost certainly the last apostle who was alive who personally knew Jesus. Um, And if you've read the book of Deuteronomy before, if you're in the reading plan where it's coming up in a few weeks, but that book is all about Moses reaching the end of his life, he knows the end is near, and he wants to prepare that next generation of Israelites to step forward into the promised land and to take what God has for them. And I kind of view the letters of John in the same way. It's John at the end of his life preparing that next generation of Christians to move into a time where now there's not, pe- like, when they have questions about Jesus, now there's not people to ask who, like, knew him, who can answer those questions directly. Um, now, What they have is is the written gospel. They have the words of Christ, and now they need to move into the future with that. And And so what does John talk about? He talks about the importance of holding fast to the faith. He talks about rejecting false teaching. And again, you'll notice the theme. He talks about the importance of love. Are we showing love to others? And so as as we wrap up our our series today, um, you might be wondering what happened to Revelation. Uh, You heard it here first, folks, but we're doing a series on a chunk of Revelation later, so we're saving it for that. Um, But we didn't didn't skip it accidentally. Don't worry there. Um, But I I wanna leave with two points of application about the epistles. Um, The first one I mentioned already a little bit, but because these are some of the earliest documents, I think it's incredibly faith-building for us to know that, because sometimes you'll hear like, well, people probably didn't think Jesus was the Son of God until much, much later. Well, we have these letters which are dated incredibly early, where that's already what they're saying. So, so, so we know that this is what the church has believed. Um, the second thing is the epistles are kind of the practical application section of the, of the New Testament. Like if the gospels are telling us who Jesus is, what he said, here are the words of Christ, What the epistles do is they take those, they take the gospel, and they apply them to different situations. And we get to see, right, how did these people who knew Christ, how did these apostles take his truth and apply it to the church at Corinth, which was, you know, going through a lot of dysfunction, or the church at Philippi, which was doing really well. How did they apply it to a master and slave situation? How did they apply it to Timothy and Titus and Gaius, who were all pastors in different situations? How did they apply it to... Over 50 years is the span of the epistles, maybe, maybe more. How do they apply it to each of these situations? I, I think it's an incredible gift that we have where we see these practical examples of how to apply God's truth. And we can think to ourselves, how can I apply God's truth in my life using those as examples? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift that are these books. And I pray that we would never lose our sense of awe, that we would never lose our sense of wonder at the fact that we are holding your inspired word and that we are holding letters written by people who knew you, by apostles, and applying your truth. I pray that today that as we pray and as we worship together, that you would help in our hearts to see which one of these letters may be, which theme is sticking out, which one are you prodding us to be able to learn more about, which one are you prodding us even for areas in our lives where we can become more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.